Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And on today's show, we have a special guest. He actually has been on our show before, back in show number 35. And I'm bringing him back on today because he's got some updates to share with us. But this show is about things like forecasting property values, looking at appreciation trends and forecasts. So my guest today is Dr. Andrew Schiller. And Dr. Schiller is the founder, CEO, and chief scientist of Location, Inc., He is responsible for inventing the search and neighborhood matching algorithms that powers Neighborhood Scout, which has been covered by CNN, Bloomberg Business, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. So, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Marco. It's great to be here. It's great having you back on. I really enjoyed doing the show with you in the past, talking about analyzing neighborhoods and the power of your product with Neighborhood Scout. I use it daily, so you know I'm a walking testimonial for it. But I know you've been keeping yourself really busy, so why don't you give us, first of all, a quick update or an overview, actually, of what Neighborhood Scout is, and then we can get into some of the changes you've made later. Absolutely. I'd be glad to. So Neighborhood Scout has served about 65 million people since it was first launched in 2002. Neighborhood Scout is a platform where people can learn about locations with data on crime, schools, appreciation rates, housing market, vacancies, demographics, and all that are built together into one simple-to-use platform and reporting mechanism. Much of the data and analytics that are in Neighborhood Scout are built in-house by our people. PhD scientists. So unlike many other types of services or sites where they simply aggregate existing data, we are primarily a source of and builder of uh, high-end analytics, predictive analytics, trends, and information that can help people make really informed decisions. So those are specialties, and we bake it into Neighborhood Scout. You know, I'm a geographer. I've always loved place. So the whole idea about Neighborhood Scout is to reveal the truth about locations. We have no vested interest in people moving to or buying property in any particular place or even moving or buying at all. What we want people to be as empowered as possible. (laughs) To tell you a personal story, when I bought my first house in 2001, it was a year before launching Neighborhood Scout. And my first daughter, Wendy, was not quite one year old at the time. And I was just finished with my geography PhD program. I was well-trained. I was able to find information and aware of the importance of location. So we selected a lot on a quiet, dead-end street in Worcester, Massachusetts, near hiking trails and within walking distance to local shops. But one year later, I launched Neighborhood Scout, and I quickly entered what was important for us in a neighborhood. At that time, for us personally, we wanted good public schools, affordability, educated neighbors, low crime, for example. And Neighborhood Scout delivered a map, and my eyes were permanently opened to a new level of understanding. We should have bought two miles away, and I didn't even know. The answers were right there at my fingertips. I could see the world, and I could make educated decisions. It was a great enlightenment. And now, as of about a week ago, 15 years later, that great enlightenment is happening again for me personally with Neighborhood Scout's new arrival of information. We have 
gone from about 310 or 320 analytics and data elements in an individual neighborhood scout report to now well over 640. And so much of it was things that we built in. And we call a lot of this forecasting and trend information scout vision. So this enlightenment of using scout vision to forecast data for every neighborhood and micro-neighborhood in the U.S., I can now see where to buy and when to buy and why a property is a better bet. And with this tool, I can make the best and most successful decisions for my life that I couldn't make before. And it's very similar to when we first launched Neighborhood Scout all those years ago, and I was newly awakened to the possibilities and understanding of my environment that made such a difference. So while Neighborhood Scout has been live for 10 years, I've been thinking about how would we be able to better track the trends and the forecasts of real estate and micro-neighborhoods all around the country because you know that you're not just visiting a place when you invest in it. You're basically usually there for a few years at least, if not longer, and either as a home buyer or primarily as an investor. And what we realize is that things are changing all the time. And so what it looks like today isn't what it looked like a few years ago. And it's almost certainly not what it's going to look like a few years from now. But how to understand those trends and those trajectories of change is something that has been very interesting to me for a long time. So for about 10 years, I've been thinking about this problem. That's a long time to think about a problem. I think if I were quicker, maybe I could have done it in five years. But we started with the idea, we were noticing that there were these things that were coming up. Did you know that in 1969, real estate in Nantucket, off the coast of Massachusetts, was less expensive than the average real estate in America? It's true. You could have bought a home in Wichita, Kansas, and at that time, the home in Nantucket may have been less expensive. But by 1989, the real estate on Nantucket had become some of the most expensive in the world. And something had happened there. And wouldn't you have liked to have known what it was? Because now the rents that it can command are so astronomically high. And every place is going on a path. And to understand what those paths are is very important. If you fast forward to more recent times into the 2000s, wouldn't it have been incredible to know that Brooklyn was going to come up like it has? And particularly, which neighborhoods in Brooklyn? Because that's a big borough with you know hundreds and hundreds of neighborhoods. Where is it going to go up and where is it going to go up the most? Where did the rents go up the greatest and where could you get the greatest value in a time frame? And then fast forward even more, you can think about Oakland and California and how that's come up, but which neighborhoods in Oakland have come up and why and which ones have gone up the most. That has inspired us. So we took two years to build data and analytics and think about how we could track the trends of places down to the micro neighborhood where people are buying property, the type of thing where people are living, not just at a broad city level or a county level or not even as broad as a zip code, but right in close and just to the block and a few blocks around that. And through a lot of effort, we realized that a lot of the data we needed to build this didn't exist. And so we had to build it. And so we set on a path with a team of PhDs to try to work 
is through, thinking more like geographers than economists, but economic geographers. And this culminated in the, the Scout Vision suite of data analytics that are part of the new NeighborhoodScout.com. That was a great overview, and I got three questions out of that. So let's kind of start with, you know, back to your story. I, I don't want to leave that alone. You mentioned that you bought a property back in 2001, and you should have bought two miles away. Now, two miles is not that far. What was it that you realized after you did your analysis that told you you should have bought two miles from where you actually did buy? It was a combination of all those things that were important to us. The public school, you may not remember back, but in 2001, public school test data and public school quality ratings weren't as available as they are now. But when we launched that in Neighborhood Scout, we could quickly see that the elementary schools in other part of the area were much superior. We also saw that the trend of the real estate values in the other area were much better. And that the character of the neighborhood, the things that were important to us as people who were going to be owner-occupied and live in it, included the educational attainment of the neighbors. In this other area, while our block, our street, had a good educational attainment in the first place, the other one was even higher and more broad than just our street. So we actually were able to find more people that we would have more in common with in a place that was likely to hold its value and go up in value more and also provide better schools for our children, or at least initially our daughter Wendy and later on our daughter Isabel, than the other place that we had bought. Right. You talk about data a lot, and I know you're a PhD and you're heavily driven by data and you probably surround yourself with a lot of data, but you talk about letting the data tell the story. Can you explain that? What does that mean exactly? Oh my gosh. I think every piece of data or a set of information analytics is a story. It's almost like the paint on a paintbrush that you can put on a canvas and to tell a story. And when I see data and see patterns in that data, it tells me a lot about what's happening and why. So some of the things that really were driving our thoughts about telling stories with data was that in a large part, real estate values and rental values, we could envision them a lot like you can envision fluid dynamics, where they go from high to low, like water would rush downhill and then pond up. So in places that were relatively high rents or high expense, but they were surrounded by lower cost and lower rents, there would be very little pressure to continue to push those values up. But if it was a place that was lower rents and lower cost property that was surrounded by areas that were more expensive and increasing more, there would be a lot of pressure to push the values in the lower cost area up, including those rental values. So this was part of our thinking on the way to analyze the information amongst, I think there's over 200 different data elements in the way that we've been looking at the information. But we were able to ascertain which places were likely to go up by the patterns of these fluid dynamics of values around them. And so these stories would unfold through maps, unfold through interesting combinations of things. So for example, people move out of the city, like New York City, to move to the suburbs for various reasons. Maybe they want better schools, lower costs, a little more space to raise their children, but they still shouldn't divorce themselves entirely from those things that were so important that they were getting in the city. And one of those is access to high-paying jobs. And it all comes down to the fundamentals. If a place has good access to solid employment, 
you're better able to command rents, have lower vacancies, and real estate values will maintain or increase. What we've found time and time again is that those places in the suburbs that are closer in to jobs, that are near a transportation hub, and combine good schools are the places that tend to hold their values the most and go up the fastest. And one example of this in our local market here in the Boston area is the eastern part of Arlington, Massachusetts. And Arlington was just a generic town probably 20, 25 years ago on the edge of Cambridge. But because it had a subway stop right on the edge of it on the red line, because it had decent quality schools, a lot of people who were maturing after going to Harvard or MIT or Boston University or any of the other colleges and universities in the area fell in love and had children. And they said, where should we move? And they moved to the next town out. But it still had that access to the city. When you combine those two things, it really took off in value and it's done great. So that's one of the things that I always think about when I'm thinking about the trajectories of a place, a place that may not have been much, but may have been near so much and how that transpires to drive values and of course, drive rents up and vacancies down. Right. You know, I love your example of Nantucket. That is a great example of being able to see something in the future that didn't exist at the time. And I guess you need the data and the tools. Now, we deal with two types of people, those that are analytical and they love the data and they feel comfortable around it. But then there's another type of person who, you know, their eyes would just cross and glaze over if they were surrounded by that much data because they wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't know how to analyze it. They would just feel overwhelmed and it becomes a stressful environment. When you have a tool like Neighborhood Scout, and I'm sure there's some others out there, you've got to be able to quote unquote, dumb it down to the point where you can extract intelligence out of it and not just be looking at a bunch of numbers. I guess that's what you help people do with Neighborhood Scout, right? Yes, we talk about data, but I'm using it generically. We really turn it into information and knowledge. It's very straightforward to be able to take large sums of data and turn them into simple indexes where it is easy to read and understand. For example, when we look at the trends and forecasts of a place with Scout Vision, we look at two major dimensions. That is the opportunity for the appreciation potential over the next three years and the investment security. And we have a simple one through five rating. So the opportunity could be a five, which we call a rising star, but the investment security could be a one or a two, very low or low, which means that based on its past record of appreciation and the existing fundamentals in the neighborhood, you have a lot of upside, but you also have a lot of risk. And so you can actually just look at these two scores, opportunity one through five, investment security one through five, and you can see how much opportunity you have available to you and how much investment security that you need to feel comfortable in making that type of investment in that location. And it really is all about timing. Just because something has a great opportunity or maybe even has decent investment security, it is really based on a time frame. This doesn't mean that this place is going to become the next Brooklyn. It just means that over the period of the next few years, you're likely to be able to see rises in real estate values and rents in that area. That doesn't mean it will go on forever. The one thing we certainly have learned by doing these, looking at things is that real estate isn't only 
about location, location, location. It's also about timing, timing, timing. Right. Yeah. I say that all the time. A lot of people think that we look into a crystal ball and we try to make predictions. But when you base those predictions upon facts and data, then you can call them leading indicators. So my question to you is, what do you consider to be the leading indicators that affect property values? And that could be answered on two levels. We can talk about the market or the MSA, and then you could look down at the neighborhood level. And those are probably different, but I'm not so sure. So I throw the question out to you. No, absolutely. So we think of everything as being nested hierarchically. What that means is, is that neighborhoods have characteristics and conditions within them that will help position them to do well, but that will only do well if your metro region and your economy is doing well. So if that really is your constraining element in your metro region, may have lots of opportunity to do well and lots of promise, but it will only do well if your national economy is doing well. So we build models at the national level and uh, we build models at the metropolitan and regional level. And the outputs of both of those are actually inputs into the micro neighborhood models as well that are controlling. I always tell the example of a neighborhood that is in Buffalo, New York, and a neighborhood in San Francisco, California, and they're both pretty similar. But that doesn't mean that the Buffalo, New York one is going to have the same trajectory as the one in San Francisco. <laughs> the, the regional economies are just so different. The demand and the supply is just so different that it would be folly to lump them together. It's almost like there were two people passing on the sidewalk that happened to be close to each other at that moment, but that doesn't mean they're going the same place. Would you say it's like a wave inside of a wave inside of a wave? The bigger wave carries everything within those smaller waves. Yes, I absolutely would say that's true. And, you know, some of the things that you want to look at are uh, how the regional economy has been going over time. You know, we all seem to think that if things have been going well, they'll probably continue to do so. And if things have been going poorly, they probably will continue to do so. But it's hard to tell when those inflection points are. So we spent a lot of time thinking about these inflection points. And there's a few major major things that go on at the national level that drive these. And then we also look at things and trends at the metro regional level. One of those key fundamentals that is always important when it has to do with real values, rent values, vacancies, is housing affordability trends. So we look at the years of the median household income needed to buy the average house in each metro area. And we track that over time. We track it all the way back to 2000. So for example, in 2000, it took just a little over two and a half years of the average income in America to buy the average house. That's low. It's pretty low. And by 2006, it took almost four years of the average income to buy the average house. And today, it's about three and a half years of the average income to buy the average house nationwide. But real estate is all local. Mm-hmm. And so if I look at the Los Angeles area, I see that in 2000, it was over four and a half years of the average income to buy the average house. And by the time in 2007, it was nearly 11 years of the average income needed to buy the average house. That's unsustainable. Yeah. And things came tumbling down. And from 2007 to 2009, it had dropped to below eight years. And it continued to decline, but now it's back up again, and it's around nine years in the L.A. area, nine years of the average income 
household income in that metro to buy the average house. Which is still very expensive, and that's probably also true for San Francisco, for places like Manhattan, Washington, D.C. The affordability is such a key indicator for me. But, you know, when you look at that, you're also looking at trends, and here's a question for you. You know, it's relatively easy to follow trends because you're looking at a slice in time. It's today, and you're looking backwards at the past, but how reliable is it when it comes to forecasting? Some people say you're looking at a crystal ball, but how accurate and how reliable is forecasting? Well, forecasting, it really depends on how good the information is that supports the models that you're looking at to try to understand the future. So oftentimes, the models can be built so that they're overfit. That is, is that they're only good at predicting values within a certain small range of how the data was built to begin with. But what we try to do with the way that we build the data is we try to build it so that it can take into account ranges that haven't been even experienced in the past so that we can look into the future and see how things could occur based on novel combinations of characteristics. So when we look at patterns going back in time, a few of the things that we see that were really important to help us understand the future was not only the cost of borrowing money, but it was also the liberalness of people allowing the money to be lent. That is, how easy was it to get credit? And at some point, it got a little too easy. And what happened at those points were a lot of shaky loans were provided. So we track access to credit over time as well as the cost of credit over time. And those two things are very helpful along with affordability for each metro and sniffing out possible bubbles in the market. And so that helps us with some of our forecasts into the future. So, Andrew, I'm not sure we completely answered the previous question I had about leading indicators and how they affect property values. And we were talking about neighborhood level and market level. So access to credit is one factor that drives price. I want to just let you finish answering that question about what leading indicators there are that affect property values. Yeah, sure. So some of them are supply. Some of it is demand, that is population growth in an area. A lot of it has to do with the income in the metropolitan area. Also, we've taken a look at the trends in the conditions of how Wall Street is treating the industry cluster that is important or the industry clusters that are important in your local metropolitan area economy. And if those are getting hurt over a certain time period, then that will start to affect the local economy in your area. Think of places that may have extractive oil or natural gas and those things go through boom and bust cycles like Midland, Texas, or perhaps the Dakotas. You can see how this could rise and this could fall, their fates on these. And we can track those through looking at how those small industry clusters that are very specific to the types of things that they do in those metro areas are faring on Wall Street over time, not just a day, not just a week, but over a time period. So some of the things that are leading indicators are the housing affordability, the years of average household income needed to buy the average house, vacancies, educational attainment, income at the local metropolitan area, job creation at the metropolitan area, population growth or decline within just a half a mile or a mile or two miles of your location. It's the 
accessibility of transit stations or train stations to where you are located is also one of the key things. And also having kind of this idea of good bones is very important. That is, you have interesting architecture, you have certain characteristics that provide you with some amenity that people are interested in moving to. Like as Asbury Park, New Jersey became gentrified after being down and out for some period of time, a lot of it had to do with the beautiful old Victorian houses near the seaside. And those are basically some of the elements that could be considered good bones. But also an educated populace in New York City that was interested in moving there and to try to fix those places up because there was a price differential that made it worthwhile to do. So those are some of the many factors. There's so many hundreds of them. But one of the other things that's kind of interesting is trends in crime. That is one of the things that really will keep a place from going up in value in urban and suburban areas is the risk of violent crime. And if we see violent crime risk dropping as a trend, that is a real good leading indicator in a particular neighborhood area that that place is maybe primed for other good things to happen as long as there are other things that are taking place at the same time. Maybe there's good transit, maybe there's reducing vacancies, good access to high-paying jobs nearby, and a variety of other things that are important that are culminating in the opportunity for change. But crime is a wonderful leading indicator, the crime trends, not just how much crime was there. Because some places, it's almost like it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you used to make. It's the same with crime. It's not necessarily how safe it is now, but it's how much more or less safe it is now than it was. Is that to say that the crime trend is more important than the amount of a crime in an area? It tends to be because people are looking at the differences. Now, there's probably a break point where it's still too high, but at some point it'll drop lower and it'll open it up. It's almost like an economic release. And now people are willing to venture in there and invest and they feel more confident and comfortable doing so. You know, I see areas that make great rental neighborhoods. It's just a solid, stable area. The numbers are great. The neighborhood is clean. But these areas have very poor school ratings, yet they make great rental areas. How important is the school rating to an investment property or an area when you're looking at it from an investment perspective? Well, it really depends on who you're trying to rent to. In some cases, it wouldn't make as much difference, I think. If you're an owner-occupied and have children, it's probably a big deal. But rentals, it's very difficult It takes a long time to build a great school system, and so it's hard to find a great school system that isn't already priced high so that it's hard to make the numbers work from a rental perspective when you're purchasing property. Occasionally, you can find them, and I think that if you can, then if it's multiple-bedroom property, then you can usually do very well on the rents because they will command higher rents. But so often, they command even higher prices, which makes it difficult to work from the numbers perspective. Right, right. I see areas all the time that have just average or below-average school systems, but they're just great rental areas. And they have been for a long time, and I don't see a trend towards the negative. It just seems to be a good area to continue to invest in. And even with crime, I see the same thing where an area doesn't have a good crime rating. It looks relatively poor, but it's an area that does not have increasing crime. And it happens to be what I call neighborhood normal. It's the norm for the area. People understand that, yet they still want to live there. And there's a large tenant pool for that area. So it doesn't affect me and it doesn't bother me as an investor to look in an area 
area like that, because I know that that's just normal for that area. Yeah, that makes total sense. We've done a lot of analysis looking at crime and what the correlations are in certain places. And a lot of it has to do with stability in the neighborhood, people who have lived there a long time, people who provide pressure for it to behave a certain way. And sometimes some of the greatest neighborhoods have a relatively high property crime rate, but a modest to moderate level of violent crime. Sometimes they're neighborhoods that are simply solid working neighborhoods, places where firefighters and Department of Public Works workers live and their families, and it's very solid. But what I had been referring to before was trying to ascertain those trends where things are going to switch their trajectory or change from one type of place to another, not so much those places that are going to stay the same. So that's more of what I was addressing in my previous comments. Okay. My second last question is this, and then I'm going to end with what you've changed with Neighborhood Scout. But this is kind of the big question that I would have, and I'm sure a lot of investors would have. If I was a new investor, or let's just say you're out looking for your next property, and you're looking at neighborhoods, and price growth is an important factor for you. What would you say are the key neighborhood price drivers that you should look at or you would look at or I should look at as an investor at the neighborhood level? Yes. So some of the key price drivers at the neighborhood level, great question. I would look at access to transit is a very big one. I would look at vacancies being lower or trending towards lower. I would look at a nice mix of renter and owner-occupied properties, not all rent and not mostly owned either. I would look at some, like you were mentioning about places that stay and stay and stay and they're solid. I would look at stability in the neighborhood, which is how many people, what percentage of the population is here now lived at the same address last year or even five years ago. The more stability you have in the neighborhood means that people feel comfortable with the way it is and they're not looking to leave. And that's a really good indicator of a place where people feel good about being there enough to continue to stay. What would you call that turnover? Is there a name? for it? Or how would you even do that? Well, there's data that we offer on Neighborhood Scout that looks at transients. Okay. I just simply call that turnover. So you have that data. Okay. I have not focused on that. Yeah. It's very helpful to see that. There are some places where there's a turnover of you know, 70, 75% per year. And there's other places where the turnover is less than 5% per year. Okay. It's a real big difference. And it's a nice indicator to take a look at. Even if it's not specific to your property, it tells you a little bit about the character of the neighborhood and what to expect in that neighborhood. Got it. Okay. So tell us about these additions and new tools that you've put in the new release of Neighborhood Scout, because I've noticed there's quite a few of them. Sure. So we did a few things to make things easier for people to use it. We enlarged the maps. We made it mobile friendly so that you can access this on your phone and, and really use it very easily on your phone. And we have allowed people now and users so that they can unlock individual reports as they go one by one, in addition to subscribing and getting like an 80% discount on that. But a lot of the content we've done and the features of the product itself have been a little different too. So a couple of those are that we have increased the number of data elements that you'll find in a report to 640 with tabs that are overview with a full text description of the neighborhood, real estate, demographics, crime, schools, and trends and forecasts, including what's happening at the metro area. Those are big additions 
to the reports. We also now support a PDF printable version, and in the Pro package, there are no ads on the site as well, so it's nice and clean and easy to use. The data in the crime section that we have updated, which is kind of interesting, is that in the past, we gave you a crime index on a 0 to 100 scale based on how safe the neighborhood is relative to other neighborhoods in America, and then we showed you the total crime per 1,000 people, the violent crimes per 1,000 people, and the property crimes per 1,000 people. But now what we've done in addition to that is we've created, in addition to total crime index, we have a violent crime index on a 0 to 100 scale to make it nice and easy to understand, and a property crime index on a 0 to 100. And then we did the same thing with a 0 to 100 scale for each of the major types of crime. So you can quickly, at a glance, see what types of crime are most and least of an issue in that neighborhood, whether it be something like burglary or petty larceny, or if it's something more serious like homicide or armed robbery or the like. And you can see that quickly through a nice little glance on these indices on zero to hundred scale. The trends and forecast tab also brings in new information on how the school quality is trending over time, how the educational attainment in the neighborhood is trending over time, if the vacancies are going up and down. And also very importantly, another indicator that I forgot to mention before is unemployment. So not only do we show you what the unemployment rate is in the neighborhood relative to the nation, but we show you what the average annual change in that has been over the last five years. So you can see whether it's a stable place with a somewhat higher unemployment rate or if unemployment's going down or if if it's going up and at what rate it is going up or down. We also track household income over time and per capita income over time to give people a sense of what's happening in that particular neighborhood. And at the metropolitan level, we also look at a variety of other indices that look at how the job creation is going in there in that metropolitan area, what the wage changes are in that metropolitan area, how the stock market has been treating those areas, industries, and a variety of other things that provide a good context for is this a great place to go looking. So there's been some metro areas that have done so well through time, like recently Austin, Texas, but our data show that that metropolitan area is probably nearing the top. It's at or above its historical all-time high for the years of the average household income needed to buy the average house. It's become unaffordable, and we predict that over the next 60 months or less, it's going to begin to see a decline in its real estate values, in a cyclical decline in its real estate values in the Austin, Texas area, as well as the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which has also become overheated as far as values are concerned on a historical perspective for those metropolitan areas. And other places that you wouldn't expect look like they've got several more years of good run-up to do in them, like Las Vegas, Nevada, based on it still recovering from having its values decline so much back in uh, 2008. So you can see all these types of trends and these patterns and forecasts into the future for the metropolitan area trends and the neighborhood trends and forecasts into the future in the new Neighborhood Scout platform. So I hope you guys will come by, take a look at it, and, and let me know if it's helpful. Yeah, well, people can go there and get a free report. I like what you've changed. It's easier to understand. It's more graphic. You put a lot of focus on the trends and forecasting. There's a lot more in terms of data points. I like that you can get very hyper-local, which I think is an important thing. I do talk about looking at metro areas as a starting point with investors, but you have to drill down into more granular locations. It's not just the areas or the suburbs, but it's even the neighborhood level that you need to consider. So... No, I think you've done a great job. And, you know, with the free report, people can go over there and give it a try. Like I said, I'm a testimonial and an endorsement. I don't get paid for saying any of this. So, you know, I use it as a tool and, and I'd like other people to use it too. So I think it's a great job. 
Andrew, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap it up here? Not at this time, Marco, but if you've got some interesting stories about how people have used the Neighborhood Scout to help them make decisions or that it gave them some insights that kept them picking the right places, I would love to hear it. My own personal story something I'm glad to share and would love to hear other stories as well. Yeah, great idea. Well, great. So I guess they can find you and your work at NeighborhoodScout.com. Is that the best place? That's it. That's exactly right. Thank you so much. Great. Andrew, thanks for uh, spending some more time with me here today, and um, I'm sure we'll have you again in about a year's time. Thank you, Marco. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Well, I hope that episode was helpful because when you're talking about data and analytics, for some people, it's a little too complicated. They just want the bottom line. You know, what does it mean to me? And for other people, they like charts and graphs and looking at data and trying to figure out, was this the best option out of many options, out of multiple markets? So keep in mind that a tool like Neighborhood Scout is exactly that. It's just a tool. It's a powerful tool, but it's one of many. But you also need the right team. You still need people people working with you and for you, such as your property manager, your consultants, your lender and mortgage brokers, etc. So you need the right team of people around you to help you make those decisions that are able to get in on the ground floor and give you the boots on the ground type of information that you need. So, you know, just use Neighborhood Scout and other tools like that to give you the macro and micro type of data that helps you make a decision as an investor. And if you do that, you'll be well-informed and you'll be able to make more intelligent decisions and hopefully avoid or minimize any kind of risk that comes along with any kind of investment, real estate included. I will say that I've met Andrew in person about a year ago or six months ago out in Miami when I was speaking at one of the IMN events. And he is a very, very bright guy. He's almost too smart for his own good. He just knows so much and he knows how to take a bunch of data and pull stories and intelligence out of it. So it's just a lot of fun working with him. So uh, anyway, if you haven't downloaded our free report, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but we have a great little ebook called The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. Download that for free at our website, noradarealestate.com. If you have any questions you'd like me to cover in an upcoming episode of Ask Marco, just send those to me through our website at passiverealestateinvesting.com. You can just click the Ask Marco button and submit your question. I will reply to you directly, and if it's a good question for our audience, I'll read them online. Don't forget, if you're uh, in the market for some property or building a real estate portfolio, take advantage of our free strategy session with one of our investment counselors. And if you're listening to the show for the first time, remember to subscribe. We try and put out a weekly episode, so that will help you along. And again, as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com.
Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.